0: You are listening to audio from Hyde Park Baptist Church. If you would like to learn more about our ministry, please visit hydepark.church. Let's turn to Acts chapter 10. This morning, Acts chapter ten, and uh, we're going to take a look at uh, Peter. Uh, if you've been following along with us, you know that we just uh, talked about Paul, uh, his conversion uh, on the Damascus Road, and, and all that was going on with that, and how that it changed his life, took a a man who was uh, who was a hater of Christianity and uh, turned him into a missionary and a church planter. Paul has uh, now re- returned to Tarsus and Luke, uh, the writer of the book of Acts, is gonna turn his attention back to Peter. And we're in a middle section in the book of Acts, and in this middle section, it's almost like a bridge. It's like a bridge that takes us from what was happening in Jerusalem that the ministry was exploding, that the gospel was being shared. The thousands of people are coming to faith in Christ. And as you know, after uh, Stephen's martyrdom, the church spreads beyond Jerusalem. And we, we first see Philip down in Samaria, of all places, with an Ethiopian. We see uh, the, the gospel spreading beyond Jerusalem. And, and this middle section is kind of this bridge between all of the ministry that was happening locally to what's going to happen when Paul takes the gospel to the nation. So as you find your place in Acts chapter 10, I, wanna, I, wanna, I want to, I you to use your imagination for a moment. I want you to imagine that you've been charged with a serious crime, but yet you're innocent. In other words, you didn't do it and it's not just a, a phrase or an excuse. You did not commit the crime, but yet you've been charged Uh, You have gone to jail, you've made bond, you've gotten out, and now you're awaiting your your trial date. So eventually, uh, after getting a lawyer, your court date is set, and you've been waiting. You can't wait for the day to share your side of the story. Because in your mind, uh, justice is going to prevail, and you're going to be found innocent by jury of your peers, and you're going to be set free. But you can't wait to be able to present your side of the story, because your side of the story exonerates you and shows your innocence. So a jury of your peers are chosen, a court date is set, and here you are in the courtroom. But before the jury comes out, uh, it's just you and your defense lawyer, and you're sitting there at the table, and um, the jury is is back behind the walls with the judge and the prosecuting attorney. And before the trial even begins, the prosecutor, the judge, and the jury have a meeting uh behind closed doors and, and in that meeting they are looking at a video of you and they're watching you come into the cl- courtroom they're they're watching your mannerisms and and all of a sudden the jury begins to talk among themselves and they say you know i i believe i believe that he or she's guilty i mean look by the way he or she's walking um look look at how they're acting not only that another juror rises up and says you know uh that person's race, that race has a tendency to commit this type of crime. And, and so, so therefore I'm casting my vote for a guilty verdict. Another person says, well, I've looked at his or her background and I see here that they didn't get a college education. They, they just went to a trade school and, and we know that people in the trades tend to be criminal. So this conversation is happening behind closed doors and each juror and and the prosecuting attorney and the judge are having a conversation about your guilt simply based off of how you look, how you act, your race, your ethnicity, your background, your socioeconomic level. They're making determinations about your guilt or innocence simply because of how you look or your history or your family or your ethnicity. They they come out of the courtroom or the behind the courtroom, they come out front and before your defense lawyer can even make a motion, uh, the judge says the jury has come to a conclusion and the foreman of the jury steps forward and they say, we have determined that you're guilty. And they pronounce the sentence over you. Now, of course, this is ludicrous, right? I mean, no trial, no court would ever operate like this where they have such a prejudice. And of course, the word prejudice means a, a prejudgment, a presupposition about your innocent guilt without even hearing the background or the evidence or otherwise. Of course, this is illegal to do in a courtroom, our justice system is set up in such a way that, that this would be very difficult for this to ever happen, if not impossible. However, however, it happens in life all the time. It happens in the hearts of people, where we, we look at someone based on their outward appearance, or, appearance or, or maybe what we know about their background or what we think we know about their background, and And all of a sudden, we we pass judgment in our heart and in our mind, and maybe even we vocalize that judgment simply because of what we see and what we think we know. Peter is going to be confronted with exactly that in this text, and and it has to be dealt with. God God is going to deal with this issue not only in Acts 10, but we're going to see it all through this bridge part of the book of Acts and that this issue of prejudice that lives in the heart of Peter, must be dealt with for the Great Commission to be effective and to move forward. Peter, as the story picks up in Acts 9, he, he's, he's moving more north and, and east, away from Jerusalem. I'm sorry, northwest. He's moving west towards the coastline. He's eventually gonna end up in Joppa. And as he's moving further and further away from Jerusalem, he's confronted more and more with, with the reality that the gospel is going forth to the Gentiles. He ends up at a place called Lutta, and there he's, he's going to heal a paralyzed man, Aeneas. He's going to eventually make his way to Joppa, He's he's going to be able to raise a woman back to life that had died, a woman who was devout and and had put their faith in Christ. Both of these people more than likely were Jewish people. Both of these areas, both Ludda and Joppa, were very heavily uh, populated with Jewish people. It was a major trade route from from the sea to Jerusalem. So, So Peter is among probably mostly Jewish people, although he sees the gospel going forth to the Gentiles. Peter, who's been involved in this movement ever since Jesus told Peter that he would be that rock, that foundation, that that one that would lead the church. We see it at Pentecost when Peter leads the charge and preaches the message that 3,000 people respond to. We see Peter faithfully proclaiming the gospel and and, and making disciples. And those disciples go and make more disciples. And Peter has been faithful, but there's something inside the heart of Peter that, that God is going to deal with and has been dealing with all the way up to chapter 10. You see, the movement of Christ, the movement of the gospel has been going to places like Ethiopia, has been going to places like Caesarea and Capernaum, Places where Gentiles are coming and putting their faith in Jesus. And the movement is spreading beyond Jerusalem and beyond Jewish context. And that's exactly what Jesus said would happen. Prejudice is a preferential bias, a presupposition, a preconceived idea about someone that you might have without even knowing them. It could be based off of skin color, ethnicity, ethnicity, Socioeconomic, their family, uh, their education—any host of things can can become a a prejudgment that we have in our hearts and our minds about another person. And prejudice, prejudice, racism. Listen, it can never be reconciled with the gospel. It can never be reconciled or even supported. I've heard down through my many years of, of ministry of how people have taken the Bible and tried to use the Bible as a as a platform to pronounce prejudice and racism. Let me be as very clear as I can possibly be that all people are created in the image of God and it makes no difference the color of their skin or otherwise, the value they have to God. That does not change anything in the value they have to God as a created human being by the hands of God. So let's take a look at Peter's struggle and what God begins to put his hand on in Peter's life to deal with this particular issue. Let's pick it up in verse 1. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion, of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man, a devout man who feared God with all of his household. He gave alms generously to people and prayed continually to God. So we meet this guy by the name of Cornelius. Cornelius is at Caesarea. Caesarea is about 33 miles north of where Peter is in Joppa and a little bit more inland. Peter is at Joppa and he's he's living and staying in the house of a man named Simon, and he's a tanner. He's a a man who who takes the carcasses of animals, skins them, and uses that skin to make leather and other goods that were needed in that time. Peter is lodging with Simon the tanner, and 33 miles to the north, there is a man by the name of Cornelius who who is a God-fearer. He's not a man who has converted to Judaism. He's a man who has heard about God, worships God, prays to God. He, he gives generously of his money and his time and his talents to the work of God. But hear me very clearly, Cornelius is a lost man. Cornelius has not put his faith in Jesus. Cornelius has not moved from darkness in the light, but Cornelius is a good man. Cornelius is a man who is seeking God, much like what we saw with the Ethiopian. He, he had this desire to know God. But for whatever reason, Cornelius had not converted to Judaism. We don't know. The Bible is silent on that. But he had not converted to Judaism, yet he continued to seek God. At about the ninth hour of the day, which is about 3 p.m., he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come to him and say to him, Cornelius... And he stared at him in terror and said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one called Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging with Simon the Tanner by, in a house by the sea. So this angel appears to Cornelius because Cornelius has been praying and calling out to God. Cornelius has been wanting to go to a deeper place with God and understanding God, but he has separated from a holy God by his sins. And the only thing that could remove those sins, remove that guilt is Jesus Christ. And he needs to hear the gospel. So God in his infinite love and grace sends an angel to Cornelius and says, hey Cornelius, Peter, one of the apostles is only 33 miles away from you. Send some of your people to go and get Simon Peter and bring him to Caesarea. Now that's something we need to understand. Cornelius is not only a a Roman commander of about a hundred troops, but Cornelius is a Gentile living in Caesarea, which is heavily populated with Gentiles. Now, up until this point, Peter has been stretched when he went to Samaria to, to, to see the Holy Spirit fall in Samaria. Peter has been stretched a little further by leaving the area of Jerusalem and Judea and heading to the northwest near the sea, and he's, he's been confronted with over and over again the move of God among the Gentiles. But what's about to happen with Peter is going to force Peter into a corner. And that was God's intention all along. Peter's been preaching and teaching all through these areas, and now God is going to bring him to Caesarea to a household of Cornelius who is a Roman Gentile occupier, a Roman commander, a Roman captain, who is part of the Gentile occupiers who have held Jerusalem and the Jews under their thumb and the entire region under their thumb for many years up to this point. Peter's preconceived prejudice, that prejudice that lies down deep in Peter's heart, God is gonna bring to the surface. Look at verse nine. The next day, now that the scene shifts from Cornelius in Caesarea back to Peter in Joppa. So Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. This is about noon. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while he was preparing it, while they were preparing the food, he fell into a trance. So here's Peter in this upper room of Simon the Tanner's house. Now, let me give you a little background here. Simon the Tanner, uh, this this profession that he was involved in was a very dirty, nasty, smelly kind of job. Uh, it still is to this day. People who, who work with hides and tanning hides and, and making leather goods from animal skins, it's a very smelly, stinky process. As a matter of fact, I saw a, an episode of... Uh, Horrible jobs. I I think I just got the name of the TV show wrong, but uh, it was uh, where he had went and visited a tanner where they were actually making skins and they were talking about the smell. Simon the Tanner, his house would have been far outside of town. Simon the Tanner would have been way out on the outskirts of town where nobody else lived because the smell was so horrible around his house and through his profession. As a matter of fact, Simon the Tanner, because of his work and with his hands, he would have smelled horribly bad because of the process of taking these skins and getting the fat and the, and the meat off of these animal carcasses and letting them dry and the, the process that they went through. So Simon the Tanner was, would not be the guy you would choose to live with. More than likely, he was a Jewish man who had converted to Christianity. Peter is now lodging at his house and is upstairs and he's hungry. And he falls into a trance. And saw the heavens open, verse 11, and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. So so Peter falls into this trance. He is in a a heightened state of awareness, but yet he is in a, not necessarily a dream state, but he's seeing a vision where he is not sleepy and drowsy. No, a trance indicates that that Peter was very awake and very alert and saw exactly the vision as it's described here in the book of Acts. So, So Peter is in this trance and he sees coming down from heaven... What looks like a great sheet, maybe a banquet sheet, or maybe some of the canopies that would have been on the homes around in the area where he was at in Joppa. We're not really sure exactly what it was, but what was on that sheet is is staggering. On that sheet or on this canvas that comes down by the four corners, Peter looks and on this this canvas or on this banquet sheet is, is a whole host of animals animals that by Jewish law were considered unclean, animals that you could not slaughter and eat. In Leviticus chapter 11, part of God's law for the nation of Israel is that they were to be separate from the rest of the nations around them. And what was gonna separate them, not only their covenant promises with God and the, the promises that God made to them, but the way they were to live their life. And the world that that the Israelites lived in in the Old Testament was a very barbaric culture. And when God set forth the law through Moses, he separated a people unto himself that that every aspect of their life, even down to the foods that they ate, was going to be separate and different from the rest of the nations around them. That Israel was to be a, a nation of priests and that their mission was to be light to the rest of the world. Yes, even to the Gentile world. So Peter has been raised in Judaism, and he knows Leviticus chapter 11. He knows that the animals that are shown on this sheet are unclean. Notice what happens. It says, verse 13, And out of that trance, in that trance, there comes a voice to him that says, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. This is staggering to Peter because Peter has been raised as a Jewish young man. He, he knows that to partake in any of those animals that are on that sheet, to partake in, in reptiles, is absolutely forbidden. They're unclean. But the voice of God says to Peter, Peter, rise up. You're hungry, right? I mean, you're, you're up here and you're hungry, then by all means, rise up and, and kill an animal from this from the sheet. Peter says, verse 14, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. Now, there is, a, there is a conflict in verse 14. And I want to point it out to you. We're going to come back to it near the end, but I want, I want you to see this. He says, by no means, Lord. The, the idea of of Lord or Lordship is the idea that that Peter is in subjection, submission to his Lord. He, he knows that this is the voice of God speaking to him, and this voice is giving him a command. And in that moment, Peter says, There's no way I can eat of these animals because I've been raised my entire life to understand that these animals are unclean. Yet this voice is saying, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter says, Lord, in other words, you're my king, my sovereign king. Yet he says, Not today, Lord, (laughs) not today, by no means. I've never eaten one of those animals, and I'm not gonna start today. Do you see the contradiction there? The contradiction is, is that Jesus Christ, God the Father can't be Lord unless we're obedient to what he's telling us to do. And the conflict that Peter is having here is a, he's having a major meltdown here because he can't reconcile in his mind how that he's been raised his entire life to practice kosher eating practices prescribed in the law. Yet God is saying to him, rise and eat. He says, no way, Lord, for I've never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time. I would imagine that God says again, rise and eat. And Peter says, no, no way I'm going to rise and eat. No way, Lord, I'm not going to do it. The, the text says that this happened three times. Now, isn't that interesting? Peter has a history of threes, does he not? In this text, it says that this interaction between God and Peter happens on three occasions. That this sheet, I don't know if it goes up and comes down and goes up and comes down. It's seemingly what the text seems to say. But God says, rise and eat, rise and eat, rise and eat. And Peter says, no way, Lord, no way, can't do it. And somewhere in the conversation, God clears it up for him. He says, verse 15, What God has made clean, do not call common. Peter, what I have told you to do, God being the sovereign creator of the universe, the the epitome and the, the the very essence of truth and love and grace, God says to Peter, Peter, rise and eat. Because what I have declared upon this banquet sheet, I have declared it clean. And what I have declared clean and what I have declared for you to eat, you rise up and eat. Now, Peter, it says in verse 17, is inwardly perplexed. I would say this happened a lot with Peter when he walked with Jesus. We see it when Jesus would speak the parables. But I would, I would imagine that one of the times that there was some tension among the disciples is in Mark chapter 7 we're not going to go back there. But in Mark chapter seven, Jesus says to the disciples on that day, there was tension about, does your rabbi from the Pharisees, does your rabbi keep the law? It doesn't appear that he is. It doesn't appear as though he, he cares about the Sabbath and it doesn't appear as though he cares about separating himself from the lower class of people. So, so is your rabbi, Jesus, is he, is he going to adhere to the law? And in that text, and there's several indications there of what Jesus has to say in that text. And one of the things is that Jesus says that it's not the things that you put into your mouth and eat that make you unclean. Oh no, there are things on the inside of the heart of man and woman that are unclean. It's the things that come out of the heart, come out of the mouth, come out of our actions that are unclean. Jesus had already said this to Peter years previous. Jesus had already said that it's not what you put in your mouth, unclean animals that make you unclean. It's not something from the outside. The Pharisees were really good at cleaning the outside, but on the inside, they were, they were people with guilt and shame, but not only that, hatred and bias and prejudice. And guess what? That has crept into Peter's heart. And God has given him an incredible illustration, but it's not over yet. Because what? God has declared as clean, is about to show up at Peter's door. Look at verse 17. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate. That's a very important point we all want you to take a look at. These Gentiles that are part of Cornelius's house, a soldier and two servants, there apparently there is a gate at the entrance to Simon's uh, Simon the Tanner's courtyard or to his his residence and they're standing at the gate you know why they're standing at the gate because they knew that the Jewish religion that if those gentiles were to enter the household of Simon the Tanner who is also Jewish that they would defile that home so there is a separation between Simon the Tanner, who is Jewish, and Peter, who is Jewish, but also a Christ follower. And Simon Tanner is a Christ follower. But there is still this separation between those Jews who've come to faith in Jesus and those Gentiles who've yet to hear the gospel. And they're at the gate, and they're yelling out, Hey, is is Peter the apostle, is he here? The reason they're doing that is they couldn't go any further. And notice this. Verse 18, and they called out and asked whether the Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. I want you to, I want you to focus in. And your translation may say this a little differently, but look at verse 20, where it says, accompany them without hesitation. This is the Spirit, the Holy Spirit speaking to To Peter, as he's wrestling with this vision that he had just witnessed in that trance, the Holy Spirit says to Peter, accompany them without hesitation. You see that word hesitation? It actually means without presupposition or prejudice. You see, the Holy Spirit is working, God is working in the life of Peter to bring to the surface a problem that's down in his heart. And that problem down in his heart that maybe he's been able to hide or cover up or not even, maybe he's even ignoring it at this point. God is bringing it to the surface because it's that thing in his heart that is preventing Peter from being the effective missionary to the Gentiles that he's been called, and all Christians have been called to be. You see, standing at his gate, standing at Simon Tanner's gate, are three Gentiles who can't enter the house because they're Gentiles. And the Holy Spirit says to Peter, Peter, I want you to go with them without presupposition, without prejudice. Yet Peter has been raised, his life... His, his adolescent life, his teenage life, his adult life, he's been raised with a presupposition and a prejudice. And that is that Gentiles are somehow subhuman, that they are, that they are less than, that they, are, that they don't deserve the same rights that the Jews have been given in the kingdom of God. That there is a wall that divides Jew from Gentile. This has been Peter's life. His family would have adhered to this. The synagogue that he attended adhered to this. The nation that he he was part of adhered to this. And that presupposition is down deep in his heart. And what's amazing about this is, is that if you go back into the Old Testament, you find that the Israelite nation was to be light to the Gentiles. But over years and over time, they turned it inwardly. They, They turned it into this high caste system where the Jews' true Jewish-born people were on this plateau where everyone else was two, three, four steps down. The Samaritans, who were partially Jews by ethnicity, they were hated. Gentiles were hated and rejected. And this is one of the things that really upset the religious leaders about Jesus, that Jesus seemed to be okay hanging out with Gentiles, even healing them and ministering. them you see what's happening here is that God is showing Peter that the mission is in fact to the Gentiles and that Peter has no right in his heart with that presupposition to declare that the Gentiles are common or unclean you see this is more than just animals on a sheet Those animals represented the Gentiles because in the Jewish mind, those animals are unclean and the Gentiles are unclean. We we, we can't participate. We can't hang out. We can't be in the household of a Gentile and we we can't eat these animals. It was all the same thing. And for them, the Gentile was unclean and therefore to be ostracized, left alone, ignored. And then you add to that, that uncircumcised Gentiles are in charge of Jerusalem, the Romans. So not only do you have an ethnicity prejudice, but you have have a deep-seated hatred because they're the occupiers. This was going to be a major issue for the Great Commission moving forward. Why? Because in Peter's day, it was a big deal to go into someone's house. Now, we we may not think about this as much today, uh, we live kind of isolated lives. Our homes have become like our, our little kingdom. And we go home and we draw up the bridge and we shut the gates and we kind of retreat into our homes. But in Peter's day, it was a big deal, a big sign of friendship and, and camaraderie to go into someone's house and have a meal. But you see, the Jews would never enter the household of a Gentile because if you did, you're unclean. Not only that, you'd be ostracized by your own people. So we have a problem here. The gospel's going forth into the Gentiles, going in, into places like Caesarea and Capernaum and all these areas. The gospel is going forth. Not only that, Cornelius wants to hear, needs to hear the gospel. And Peter's going to be sent there. But what about that prejudice down in his heart? God says that what I have declared as clean, you have no right to declare as unclean, Peter. The Holy Spirit says to Peter, Peter, go without presupposition or prejudice. What, what, if, what if a Jew goes into this household, goes into a Gentile household, and, and we're going to have a meal together? What kind of food are the Gentiles going to serve? They're not going to be kosher. They're, they're not going to be approved or adhering to Levitical law because they're Gentiles. So how in the world... Are these Christians who were formerly Jews going to be effective in the Great Commission if they won't even enter the house of a Gentile? That's exactly what's happening here. Because those prejudices, those prejudgments, God had to deal with, and he had to deal with it in one of his key leaders. Verse 21, and Peter went down to the men and said to them, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house to hear what you have to say. You know what that means, right? Peter's not going to be able to stand out in the courtyard He's going to be entered into the house of Cornelius. And in that house, he's going to be a guest. And as a guest, there's food is going to be served. Maybe even one of the animals that was on that banquet sheet. And there is a high possibility that Peter is going to be offended because of his prejudice. And it'd be very easy for Peter to say, you know what? I'm done. But there's a man in Caesarea who's going to die and be separated from God forever. And the Holy Spirit is directing Peter to go share the gospel with him. There is a man in history that I I have um, a lot of respect for and I've read at different points along the journey, but his name is Frederick Douglass. He was an African-American man. He was born as a slave in 1818. He spent most of his childhood on a plantation in Maryland enslaved to the wealthy Lloyd family of Maryland. And during those years of enslavement as a young man, he witnessed incredible cruelty. He he experienced himself as a six-, seven-year-old, eight-year-old in the house of these wealthy estate owners. He endured incredible suffering as a slave. And right around the age of six or seven, he was woken up. He was awoken early in the morning, and he went and looked out his little closet door because that's where he he stayed, and that's what it, that's where he slept. And he witnessed his 15-year-old aunt named Hester be beaten 30 to 40 times with a, a leather whip to the point where she was bleeding. She her hands were tied above her head, and uh, the slave owner, the owner of the property beat her and beat her and cursed her and yelled at her because she also was a slave. And the only thing that she did wrong was she began to show affection for another slave on this plantation. And as a six or seven-year-old boy, Frederick Douglass struggled with what he saw. And he, and he began, even at this young age, to ask some really, really hard, deep, probing questions for such a young man. How how could it be that there's a God out there who who loves the world? You see, the problem is is that the Lloyd family, they were Christians. They attended church. They were very powerful, influential people, and they went to church every Sunday, and they sung the songs, and they they practiced their faith. And for Frederick Douglass he couldn't figure out how it is that that this God who is is said to be all-loving and and all-knowing and all-powerful, how could it be that... That such an awesome God could, could possibly create two classes of people separated only by the color of their skin. Was he created to be a slave? How, how could a loving God do that? And as time would go on, he, he comes to this conclusion, he, and this is a quote, quote, "Perhaps it was not color, but crime, not God." But man, that created slavery. And it was like that epiphany moment. Later on, Frederick Douglass would come to faith in Christ. It would take some time because he really struggled with, with prejudice and hatred of all that he had seen and all that he experienced. But he eventually comes and he, he puts his faith in Jesus. And then at age 20, he's able to run away and he's able to find his freedom And and this man went on to write some incredible speeches and you need to read some of those speeches because it's incredible, some of the things that he wrote. He became a very close friend of Abraham Lincoln. He would go on to write three autobiographies. He would write numerous and give numerous speeches and one of his core issues that he kept dealing with is how in the world can you reconcile the gospel of Jesus Christ and slavery? How can you reconcile the love of Christ and and the the gospel is, is for all people regardless of ethnicity and background and yet the church of his day predominantly, the churches of his day were on the side of slavery? Some of his strongest words were reserved for the church. He said this, quote, Between the Christianity of this land and the Christianity of Christ, I recognize the widest possible difference. Let me ask you a question. If you were to have a similar vision that Peter had, remember that sheet coming down and those unclean common animals represented the three Gentiles that were going to show up at his door. If if God were to to put a sheet before you that that was symbolizing all of the things that that you have prejudice against, presupposition against, what would be on that sheet? What would it look like? You see, this prejudice, it's, it's connected... It has its roots in the fall. The fall of humanity is where all racism and prejudice has its roots. And for those of us who have put our faith in Jesus Christ and we've been given brand new life, we we still have a fleshly part of us that we're having to put to death every single day. And it's in that place where those presuppositions and prejudices lie. And if God wanted to reveal to you what some of those prejudices are, what would they be? Would it be racial? Would it be that, that an interracial marriage is what just really trips your trigger? When you, when you look at an interracial marriage, you can't help but stare, and you can't help but think that your marriage is somehow better than theirs. You may never say it. You may never vocalize it. By the way, did you know that the Bible does not speak against interracial marriage? Nowhere. Even though the Bible's been used hundreds of times down through culture to say that the Bible actually does teach that when it does not. Maybe it's The idea that you have that God doesn't love some races as much as he loves your particular race. Maybe you've made the statement, those people are coming over here and taking our jobs. Could that be connected to a prejudice based off of race? You know, we're all really part of one race, the human race. There's different ethnicities. But God so loved the world that he gave his son. That's not just relegated to the white race or any other race, but to the human race. And it's the entire human race that is broken by the fall. And we desperately need a savior. We desperately need that grace and forgiveness. Maybe, maybe it's not race at all. Maybe it's socioeconomic. Maybe, maybe you have the idea that, that all poor people are, are ignorant and lazy. Maybe you have the idea that all rich people are crooked and they, they got their money by, by stealing and taking advantage of others rather than hard work. Maybe when you see someone with a lot of tattoos, there's something on the inside of you that, that looks down at them. Or maybe someone who has a lot of piercings and you look at them and you, you make a judgment, a prejudgment in your heart about that person's worth. You know, we can, we can be prejudiced about some of the craziest things. We can be prejudiced about denominations. You know that? All the denominations that are evangelical, that preach the gospel, we can have, we can have a prejudice and a pride about our own denomination to the point where we, where we ostracize others. Professions, sports teams, man, we can be prejudiced to just about anything. What would be on the sheet that God would show you? I hope, you, I hope you're beginning to see that prejudice in and of itself is pride and arrogance that we are to serve all people, give a cold glass of water in the name of Jesus. And that means even those that we have a prejudice against. Finally, I want to ask you a question. Do you have a blind spot? Let Let me define that a little bit. You see, you've experienced grace. If you've come to faith in Jesus, you've experienced grace and mercy and forgiveness. I mean, you have been set free. You've been adopted by God. And, and then we've been sent, sent by Christ to make disciples of all nations, all nations, all ethne is the Greek word, all ethnicities. So, so is there a possibility that you may have a, a grace blind spot? In other words, you're only willing to share grace with people who are just like you because of a prejudice. You know, Peter had a blind spot. He had a pretty big one. Simon the Tanner. You see, the law also said that you couldn't be around dead animals. It was was against the Levitical law for for Peter to be around uh, a situation where there were carcasses of animals. But yet, Peter is willing to stay in Simon the Tanner's house, and I believe the reason he's willing to stay there is because Simon the Tanner is also a Jew. But isn't it interesting that that Peter would be willing to stay in that house without any kind of presupposition, without any kind of prejudice, without any kind of issue with the law, yet when those three Gentiles show up, he struggles. You see, we tend to reserve prejudice for those we believe are beneath us. But that whole idea is rooted in pride. It makes us feel better, it makes us feel important, it makes us feel as though we are superior. Do you remember back where Peter says, Lord, I'm not gonna eat these animals? You see, you have a choice here. And that is that God is bringing to the surface your own prejudice, maybe even now. Don't be like Peter and say, Lord, I'm not going to change. Or Lord, I believe this about those people and I can't let that go. You cannot say that because if he is your Lord, if he's truly your Lord, then you must surrender. And that's what we call repentance. That's what we call having a change of mind and a change of heart about what we know to be true. And what is true? that whoever that is down in your heart that you have that presupposition, that prejudice against, that is rooted in pride and the flesh, and it is not of God. And it is time to repent, to let go, to have a change of mind, and let God's love and grace that saved you overwhelm your soul. Father in heaven, thank you for your goodness and your mercy. And Father, as we... Sing this last song, I pray that you would be exalted. But, but more than that, Father, that, that you would reveal to us, all of us, including me, those presuppositions and pre, prejudgments that we have in our heart about other people. And Father, we want to repent of that. We want to ask for your forgiveness and for your healing. And Father, as we move forward as a church, a very diverse church body here at Hyde Park, That we would be able to reach all people regardless of their background, regardless of who they are. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon. For more information about Hyde Park Baptist Church, please check out our website, hydepark.church, or on social media on Facebook and Instagram, at Hyde Park Baptist.